everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of season 2 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that was just, they were doing so well with the regularity stuff, and then I think life got on the way and we stumbled for a couple of weeks. Yeah, no, uh, our mother came to stay with me, um, and then the whole of the west coast of America caught on fire. Uh, I was traveling, unrelated traveling. to the fires. Yeah, and then... The house we bought, the new people moved out early, so like the weekends were spent moving things around. So yeah, it's just been a nuts kind of couple weeks. But we uh, we got called out by a few P. Chris Ratcliffe and uh, no Craig McCormick, who we'll come back to in a second because he had some really good thoughts on our previous episode. But he said <laughs> he was patiently waiting for the next Mastication Nation episode, and uh, and then Chris Ratcliffe chimed in and said he had a an idea for M, which is just around the corner. So I think we uh, will have to wait patiently and hear what he has to say, but yeah, apologies for the... Com- there's a rather large M country that you know we talk about a lot, so... Yeah, that's true. I want, yeah, I want to hear, I want to hear it from him. Um, <laughs> but apologies for the tardiness. Uh, as you said, life kind of got in the way, but we're back. And after we needed a break, actually really fairly after Hong Kong it was kind of <laughs> emotionally draining episode. Yeah. But, uh, well, well received. And actually I always forget, I don't know why I always forget this, but Craig, uh, McCormick, our unofficial official brewer for mastication nation, uh, spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and was quick to, uh, jump into the conversation about beer, uh, the Hong Kong beer scene, which was really interesting. And apparently, we 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 didn't do a, a stellar job. <laughs> well, let's put it this, let's put it this way: we we touched like a thousand years of Cantonese food, but the thing that people caught us up on was the last twenty years of beer. Um, and let's put it this way: priorities, exactly. But also, we are. Uh, it's been a while since I've been back. Um, unfortunately, I know you're back more frequently, so. You know, some on the ground or virtually on the ground uh, knowledge was really helpful. So Craig jumped in and said, uh, pure joy to listen to the latest Mastication episode, Mastication Nation episode on Hong Kong. I felt relieved when Cube Dweller, aka Alex, admitted to only coming to appreciate Hong Kong's amazing food later in life, not when I grew up there too. We were both the same. You know, we both, yeah. you know, when, uh, no, no offense to our parents, but, um, was somewhat stunted by their lack of uh, adventurous eatings in one of the best food countries in the world. But that's kind of one of the reasons that you could eat any any culture you wanted. I remember going to uh, Kublai's, which is a Mongolian oh, place. Oh, I'd that. forgotten about Kublai's. That was a great place. And, you know, like you could have somebody, maybe it was me, got really bad food poisoning there. Really? Yeah. That's a bad uh, example. My point was that you can get food from anywhere around the world and Mongolian was one of them. And so like, you know, we, when we went back as adults, we were far more adventurous and we're not spending times around expats and, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, Craig's last one, last line on this first tweet was, as for the small craft beer section at the end, I have many corrections. The big correction was the fact that I had asserted that Guaylo Beer was doing was doing Betsy when really it was the Hong Kong Beer Company, who are two separate companies. He said, if you want to get technical, Guaylo did start out by contract brewing at HKBC before getting their own facility. As for how Betsy contract went from HKBC to Guaylo, I can tell you what I heard off air. So it sounds like some, mm. some drama amongst the... Uh, 
the the close knit brethren of Hong Kong brewers. As you said just before we came on air, there was there was a robust back and forth, not just between us, but then also a, a few other people who are active in the Hong Kong brewing scene jumped in, and the, the, this original conversation happened on June eighth, and then people who saw it who are in Hong Kong on the ground uh, at Great Hop Forward jumped in and commented that uh, this brewery Water Buffalo on Lantau, now one of the islands had taken up the real ale mantle more recently. Um, and it does sound like, I mean, COVID is obviously throwing everything out of whack, but that Hong Kong has, despite the challenges we articulated in the previous episode about climate and availability of equipments and, and um, ingredients, has developed a very robust local brewing scene, which is fantastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, Water Buffalo did have to to shutter during um, the tail end of, of, of COVID, but the fact that it has popped up and like a, a, a real ale, for those who don't know Hong Kong, Lantau is, we talked about it briefly, but it's it's quite, um, I don't want to say remote because it's not remote because it's easy to get to, but it's it's quite um, less developed than than the rest of Hong mm. Kong. And so the idea of, uh, you know, a real ale brewery on the sweltering jungle island of Lantau is quite quite, juxtapos- uh, quite nice juxtaposition. But uh, mm. I would have loved to have tried it. And I wonder if they'll be able to strike things back up once the world opens up. You know, I mean, I know it's maybe a bit of a, a bit of a oversimplification, but when you're making um real ale and that not exclusively but heavily uh interests the expat community and they haven't been able to get in or out of hong kong you know your your client base is going to dry up quite quickly um as we talked about in the episode the local beers that do well are more your 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 crisp and and refreshing lagers and pilsners so you know hopefully they can start coming back and, and great hop forward uh would love to know more about sort of what's happening in the in the beer scene in hong kong if you ever want to chime in that'd be that'd be wonderful yeah absolutely i mean maybe that's a little mini segment that we do i would love yeah. to know more it's it's an area I, that i'm still massively ignorant about i truly believe that we could easily do um there's a there's a a very, very, very famous podcast called My Favorite Murder, where these uh, hosts talk about like classic, you know, not classic, but like infamous murders from around the last like 50, 60 years. Um, and in their in-between episodes, they do hometown murders, which is like people write in and tell like the 20 minute episode on, oh, when I was growing up, I heard about this murder and they talk about it and do a little bit of research. It's almost like we could do an entire spinoff episode, uh, mini series on craft brewing, brewing on each of the other countries we were talking about. So like Hong Kong, you know, what's going on there, Guatemala, what's the craft scene like there and so on and so forth, because it really does seem so unbelievably ubiquitous that you will find a brewing, a beer brewing subculture, or even, you know, out in the open, like it is in the U S and in and, and Britain, everywhere we're talking about. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's always somebody who was like, mm, I think I could probably do better than this. <laughs> uh, which, you know what, that is, that is, that is necessity being the mother of, of invention. So, uh, I am all for this. The, the, the beer of, of the country we're going to talk about is a prime example of taking what was left by the, uh, the colonial powers and saying, now we're going to do it ourselves, but we'll, we'll get yeah. onto that in a second. Um, the last, the last tweet here from Ross, Ma- uh, Ross Manson up in Scotland 
another banging episode, guys. In Col- in Kalmarnik, they do a curry pizza. This was in reference to our roast beef dinner pizza that we talked about oh, in the last episode. Uh, I was not sure, but gave it a try. Pizza dough, cu- uh, choice of curry topped with cheese. I will level with you. It changed my life. Which is interesting because um, when you came to Berkeley, I mean, you came to Berkeley a bunch of times, but there was a time that you came out and we went and we got dinner and then we went out to uh, one of my favorite breweries um, and we went to the East, the East, uh, so it's Bombay East Trading Spice Company. I can't remember. Something Spice Company restaurant. It's on yeah, I remember. Berkeley and they did tikka masala pizzas. So it's not that. Uh, and and your tikka- mother-in-law was there. Yes, she was. She's arriving today. By the way, it's 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, Americans. Happy Sunday to everybody else in the world. Um, <laughs> and happy Canada Day to a couple days ago to our Canuck friends. Um, but this restaurant also did um, Indian tacos as well. Not like curry up now, but like, you know, they were good. So I don't disagree that a good tikka masala pizza or a good curry pizza would be done well. I was lamenting a pretty crappy Indian experience I had last night. Whilst Alex said that he's had a, a pretty good Indian experience tonight. I, yeah. Well, you can't get anything delivered to my house in the middle of nowhere except a very, very good, uh, n- well, I mean, they're Nepalese, technically, um, curry house. And yeah, it's outstanding. And it was, I'm about to move out of my house. And so we're kind of down to paper plates and, mm-hmm. um, plastic cutlery so it was a welcome treat after lugging boxes around for the last few weeks so what are you drinking to take your mind off the packing and everything yeah uh i'll tell you what i'm drinking i am drinking a red wine (laughs) (laughs) okay Uh, from fran from franchuk Oh, okay. Nice. In South Africa, Franchuk Cellar, it's a Pinotage, uh, which South Africa, and in particular, uh, Franchuk, is particularly good at. Franchuk um, is geologically, I think that even just underplays it, one of the most spectacular places I've ever been to in my life. It looks Mm -hmm. like it shouldn't be, if you've you've ever been. Cobus, I don't know if you still listen to the show, but Cobus will know what I'm talking about. Uh, and and rich and anybody else that's been to that it's like an hour drive from cape town proper uh and it is um bursting with um wineries of of world-class caliber and we feature one in in uh in the natasha episode in, in cape town but I don't think you can you can go wrong with anything from that neck of the woods and a and a and a good Franschuk Pinotage and it's not it's 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 fruitier than I would normally do, um, but it's it, yeah it's it's nice on a on a warmish day like today. I do find um, South African reds, if you don't know what you're looking for, can scare people off because, like, while they do have some uh, varietals that are are more nuanced um, to the un initiated they can be like when everybody went nuts with the super super oaky chardonnay you know that area of south africa went really really sort of hardcore with reds and i feel like they're really mm. robust flavors especially with their mellows and capsaves i mean the capsaves are world class but they you know it's like trying to drink from a fire hose if you've never had wine before and it's just gonna it's like smoking a cigar for the first time i think with this one this is a 2019 so it's a youngin but Sometimes they can taste a little bit 
um, like too much like sweets, mm-hmm. which isn't my jam. But this is just just below the point where it would be not nice, and it was good. Nice. I'm, well, I'm glad you're enjoying the last of the summer wine. Ah, yeah, very go. good. Very good. good what about you? What I... about you? you I want I, I want to hear what you're drinking now, and then I need you need to tell everybody what you drank yesterday during the England game. Oh yeah. Um, so today I'm drinking. So my my um, my next door neighbor is lovely guy Bruce. I don't know why I put Australian accent on. He's American, but I feel like everyone called Bruce is Australian. Um, he he and I struck up a conversation. He found out where I was originally from or lived in California. And he was saying that he's not a big beer guy, but you know he hears this thing about you know. Uh, Pliny or or, uh, or Pliny is you know one side says and we say Pliny and Pliny, the elder from Russian River uh, Brewing mm-hmm. Company back in back in Northern California. We were talking about that and he was like, "Yeah, I'm not a big beer drinker, but my nephew likes it." I'm like, "Cool, cool, cool." So about two days ago, I get this knock on the door and I'm like trying to give my kid lunch. I'm like, God, whatever. And then a knock happens again and it's raining, so I go down there and it's my neighbor with a bag full of bottles. And he's oh, like, hey, I just went what? to BevMo and, um, you know, I saw these and snagged a bunch, got a couple from my nephew. Do you want the rest? I'm like, absolutely. You know, I'm not a big IPA guy, but like for some reason, I do enjoy Pliny, as I'm going to say it, the elder. Um, it's 8%, so it is pretty strong. Mm. Um, but, you know, they have this sort of mythic uh, reputation within the uh, within the country uh, or within the U.S. So, uh, Bruce... Thank you very much. Um, what a legend. Yeah. What a neighbor. Exactly. What a great neighbor. And he's already told me I can use both his parking spots when we need the moving truck to come next week. So I'm kind of going to send him back a bottle of red wine when this is all over. Um, Maybe yesterday, a bottle of Pinotage. Exactly. Yesterday, during the England-Ukraine game, um, it was about 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Colorado. And uh, what do you drink when it's 100 degrees out? You drink an English nut brown ale. <laughs> what did our brother describe it as? Uh, cool, because it's not brown. He called it uh, Wicked Keeper's Wicked Turd. Keeper's turd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was from San Diego. Um, Anvil Brewing. San Diego, what? Yeah. Oh, so it was just an English style. It's English okay, style. And on the back of it, it says, you know, uh, biscuity, malty, cocoa flavors. Mm. And like, it's good. Um, it, uh, you know, you're not supposed to drink those things ice cold, but. I was going to drink it ice cold because it was in the fridge and it was hot out. But uh, yeah, it seemed to work. England smashed it. Was it good though? Yeah, it was all right. I mean, it's no, it's no Nuki Brown. It's no Pliny the Elder. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's this, the Pliny is hitting the spot on the rather overcast, but hot day. I feel like we're in for, we get to see these huge meteorological experiences come across the plains from Nebraska or off the mountains from the Rockies. And it's wonderful just watching all the lightning and well, today fireworks hit, hit the skyline. So that's what nice. I'll be doing. What's the best thing you've eaten? Well, I went to DC, uh, a few weeks ago and uh, I'd never been before really. I mean, I went once for a day trip and just didn't have a chance to, but, he was um, born there. Okay. Yeah. Besides being born there, uh, <laughs> And probably thrown out of the city, but uh, <laughs> Megan met me there, and Megan used to work for the Department of Justice, and so she was there reasonably frequently. So had a few tricks up her sleeves, or at least uh, 
people that she could ask um, for recommendations on the ground. And some, we some narc she could squeeze some, for some information. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm terrified of her generally. Um, <laughs> are you wearing a wire? So there are two things stand out. One of them was this um, kind of Izakaya place that we went to um, called uh, Daikaya. And it was great. It was small plates as most izakayas are. And it was sort of, it was, it was fusion-y, but it was done well. And one of the things that stood out to me was this taco rice, tacos or taco rice, which is an Okinawan okay. dish, uh, which I adore, um, which I make often at home, but it was a hard shell taco with seasoned ground pork, cheese, tomatoes, jalapenos, cilantro, sour cream so it was basically like basically taco uh, okinawan taco rice in a midwestern taco night taco shawl with all of the <laughs> standard accoutrement it should not have worked it Wait, should so have been what terrible. was the protein uh pork okay in in okinawa in normal taco rice it's usually pork or beef um like you because taco rice was created by this guy who had a restaurant at outside of the gates of one of the big military bases in Okinawa mm. in like the sixties. And it's now like an Okinawan staple. Um, but this was put in a taco and it was just like this, this should be terrible, but it was so freaking good, but more wonderful and memorable for me was Megan had gone to this place, like her favorite restaurant in DC was in actually in Georgetown. It was called Filomino Italian joint, obviously. And, she talked about it like for ages and ages and ages. And, and I was like, you know, if we're going to go anywhere where we have to go there, we have to go. We have to. And she's, she, she sort of played it down after a while. Like, mm, I, 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 I don't think, I think it may be a little bit like not your style. I think she thought I was a snob. About, I was going to be a snob about it. And I was like, I'm not, I'm I'm not a snob. I'm not a snob. I'm just, I'm just a little bit better than everybody else. You know, <laughs> But I'm not a snob. It was, and I tried to get her to come on the podcast to to, to describe this place, uh, but she wouldn't. She's too shy. It was some of the best Italian food I've ever had in my life. It was, wow. you walk down these stairs into like what looks like a, you're like, this is not going to be anything to write home about. It It was almost like pastiche. Mm-hmm. In terms of the decor and of the wait- waiters and all of that, but every, it was it was rammed. It was a I think it was a weekday. Yeah, it was a week. It was a Monday night. Um, everybody was smiling. The atmosphere was so good, and I was immediately just completely captivated by this place. And we ordered like we, I think we ordered a Caesar salad and then like two or three dishes. And there was like we had a risotto. We had a like a, a, a carbonara, annulotti carbonara ravioli, um, and then a tortellini with brisket of beef in it. Wow. Yeah. And it was like, we never, we didn't actually talk about it until like two or three days later. We're like, that was like incredible, right? And yeah. It was, it was so unbelievably good and satisfying. And one of those rare places where, you you see why people have been going there for generations. Not a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. 
you, you know, there were like first dates happening around us and, and, you know, 75th wedding anniversaries, right. you know, cause they've been, they went there on their, on their, they had their like wedding breakfast there, that type of place. It, it, it was so just uh, absolutely. And I got to see the space shuttle on that trip too. So <laughs> I added that to my collection of space shuttles. So yeah, that was good. I'm so glad that uh, I wasn't um, too snobby to go there. I um, went to a wedding <laughs> in Georgetown like five no, years ago. No, I didn't ago. know you'd been to DC. Yeah, yeah. So um, my wife's best friends from the neighbors across the street, they moved to Virginia when she was like 10 or so, um, Ryan and Colin. And uh, Ryan was getting married a couple of years ago uh, to the daughter of a vice admiral or something ridiculous like that uh so it was a pimping wedding um but we you know uh <laughs> went to georgetown like downtown georgetown is, is wonderful yeah um, it was but it was the, the story i could tell about this one was uh completely slaughtered and uh the next day i woke up we'd flown into dulles and uh got to dulles brokenly hung over tried to check in and it was like we don't have any of your information on file what's going on here I pull up my phone. Virgin America had flown us into Dallas and out of uh, George uh, George Bush. Oh, DC. Oh, yeah. DC. Reagan. Yeah. And uh, we had about an hour to get an Uber and race across the city to make it in time. We made it. Oh no! I Why remember you telling me that story. Threw up in the bathroom at George at the, 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 the what, what? So it's IAD and what's the other one? DCA. DCA. Yeah. And so yeah, made it. Broken, but uh, yeah, that's that's the last time I was in DC. Um, so for me, best thing I have eaten, like I mentioned, our mother was in town visiting us and meeting my daughter for the first time, all these COVID firsts. So mm. my daughter is 18 months old and that was the first time she got to meet mom, uh, old granny, as she's known to everybody. Um, and out of c- c- complete coincidence, mom was ex- uh, on social media saying she was coming to Colorado and an old friend of hers from when we used to live in South Africa was like, oh, I live just outside of Boulder. You should come have dinner. So we um, head up there, all of us, my wife, my kid, mom, and uh, it's this 30-acre ranch on the outskirts of Boulder. Absolutely stunning. One of the most you know exquisite pieces of architecture and, and land I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and these people are just unbelievably friendly, opened their house to us, you know, which a lot of people once have been so res- uh, reticent to do, but obviously everyone was vaccinated. And they had uh, a section off their their kitchen where they had built in like a, a grill and a green egg into the wall. Um, and yeah, I was like, this is my heaven. Uh, and then they proceeded to do these wonderful sort of miso glazed uh, trenches, tranches, trenches of salmon on cedarwood. And it was hands down the best salmon I have ever had. Usually I like my salmon either smoked or heavily grilled but this was like kissed by applewood and like with the miso glaze on it it just fell apart and it was wonderful sitting out in their courtyard having this with a nice light summer salad and some really good south african um we talked about this in the past i had some of their wine they had like three or four different varieties of secateur wine so it was really really enjoyable and if I can convince my wife to allow me to buy a green egg uh, when, when we move into the new house, I, I might have to do that. Yeah, those things, I think everybody that's got one is uh, completely taken with them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, wow, I that think, sounds amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we should probably jump into the the country du jour. Um, yeah. We've been going We back struggled f- to make a choice. There was a, there yeah. was a lot of 
A lot of really great countries with really great food scenes. And I think some were too, like India, we could not have done justice in a single episode. Yep. Um, Israel. Probably the too. same with Italy. Israel. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the food there is is fantastic. Um, Iceland would have been too, too uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Rotten fishy. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. I feel like everyone's going to look back in 20 years on all the travel content they've done on Iceland and be like, it was just a vogue. I mean, it's an amazing country, but mm. I feel like it's like, it's going to go, okay, we get it. You're eating raw petrified shark for the 18th time. I mean, or yeah. puffin or, you know. So the one we settled on, I think was like the most obvious in retrospect, because I don't think it gets enough credit or enough no. understanding in the region that it's in. Everyone thinks about Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Singapore yeah. et cetera. And it's Indonesia. We're doing I for Indonesia. And it's just a, such a complex place with so much, you know, it's an archipelago. It's the largest archipelago in the world. It's got you know, 17, so much. Islands. Yeah, exactly. Um, so much interesting um, ath- um, um, anthropological linguistic breakdowns. They have the complete eastern side that, you know, shares um, uh, land with, uh, with uh, New Guinea, which those people yeah. look nothing like what you think a Jakarta person looked like, but they're technically Indonesian. No, I mean it's and it's the fourth fourth most populous country in the world and the most populous Muslim country in the world. Well, the the island of Java itself is the most populous island in the world by a yeah. long ass way. Had you, but not even you, close to being the biggest. Yeah, have you you've been to Indonesia, obviously? Mm-hmm. So I <laughs> in my research, I like there's a lot in Indonesian. Um, in, in language, but a lot, but obviously there's expats talking about it. And one of the ones I thought was hilarious was just like, find a Westerner who says they've been to Indonesia and I'll find a man who's been to Bali. <laughs> I yeah. was like, that's quite funny, actually. So, so I actually, I haven't been to Bali. I have. I've been to, I've been to Jakarta, but I've never Wait, no, no, been no, to you, Bali. Did you come over with us? Andrew and I went to Bali. Maybe I've been to Bali. I don't remember, but I've so, certainly been to Jakarta. I've been to Jakarta as well um, a couple times, but um bali we went when i was like 10 and you guys ruined spaghetti for me because you said it was uh it was it was uh oh yeah they don't use noodles here they use worms <laughs> oh i was there i remember that because <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, assholes classic uh, big we'll get shtick. we'll get on to i love spaghetti now because my brothers are dicks um but no we'll get on to the separation of all the different islands in a second but um uh, I haven't been to I haven't been to Indonesia in like twenty years, no, so you know it's it's been a while. Um, but one of the things I found interesting, and we talked about like you know Bali versus in, in, the rest of Indonesia. Um, you said it's the largest Muslim country in the world, um, or yeah, by population, the largest Muslim country in the world. The, the, the breakdown is you know Bali is overwhelmingly Buddhist compared to. Uh, the rest of their country. And so there's different cultures, different food, pork, obviously. Um, But there are 10% of the world's languages come from Indonesia. That's how disparate it is, how completely... um, Tribal. A lot of it remains tribal. And this is the thing that I find so so interesting. You know, they got messed around by by the Dutch during the colonial times. But you'd think, and obviously, you know, I am not a historian, and maybe I'm totally misunderstanding 
um, certain areas. But for the most part, they haven't tried to enforce, they've been leaving levels of autonomy to the places that are culturally just massively different from Jakarta. There isn't that much in the way of civil uprisings in the most recent history of Indonesia. Yes, there's the Bali bombings. Yes, there were, you know, some breakaway movements, but just like the sheer population and and how spread out it is, it's it's such an interesting area of the world. Yeah, I think that they've realized that you're dealing with these outlying islands and or communities of islands that have been self-sufficient for millennia and probably just let them get on with it. And if you try and make them obey the same laws and cultural standards that you would to Jakarta, which is one of the most densely populated capital cities in the world, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah. So, I mean, let's put it this way. There's five major islands. There's Sumatra, Java, which is where Jakarta is, uh, Kalimantan, which is Indonesian Borneo, uh, Sulawesi, which always reminds me of like like coffee, like people talking about Sulawesi mm-hmm. coffee, uh, and then the Indonesian part of New Guinea. So that, those are the big islands. And like within there, you've got Jakarta, this you know huge, densely metropolitan city. And then you've got like the, the New Guinea sides of things. And then you've got an entire island that is run in Sharia law. And then you've got Bali, which is uh, part of one of the one of the much smaller ones, which like I said, it's, it's Buddhist as well. So that plus the influences of China, of Malaysia, which we'll get onto in a bit, plus the Dutch colonization of the area made for some very, very interesting food and just overall food culture. Um, one of the things I always like to do is I try to find out what is the country called in its own language. So like, you know, uh, Germany is not called Germany, it's called Deutschland. And like we talked about with, in, with uh, and with Finland is called, you know, it's not, it's not called Finland. I can't find the Indian, what Indonesians call themselves. I kept on call, finding, I think it's because they call themselves whatever their ethno background is, whatever their island is. And so Indonesia comes from the Greek, which means Indian islands. This was the original East Indias. This was the original, you know, spice islands. And mm-hmm. it, and again, that's going to play massively into the food we're going to talk about. So if anybody knows it, I'd be really interested to know if they do they did unify among uh, um, unify under a Greek derived name, or if there is a Indonesian name for the country. They have this idea of shared identity through diversity, mm-hmm. which the 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 term is unity and diversity. It literally is many yet one, which is kind of lovely because the American official slash unofficial motto is e pluribus unum, which is out of many one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Something like it's also that. kind of like what South Africa does as well. The rainbow yeah. nation. Well, it's exactly. Same, 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 same idea people, anyway. Right? But I think, you know, there's this, it's, it's really hard to overstate just how scattered and diverse this country is. When you look at it on a map, it stretches so in the east, it's it's stretching deep into the Bay of Bengal. Uh, you know, as you say, it shares landmass with Papua New Guinea, and to the south, I mean, it's the, one of the closest landmasses to Australia. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're talking thousands of miles uh, latitudinally. You know, from you know across Burma and Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, China, Taiwan, the Philippines, all the way through to Japan. I mean, it's a staggeringly massive country yep yeah and, it's and like food it, is represented in that 
I was reading some history on them and they were like talking about like, you know, the influences that have happened, obviously all the different uh, outside forces and leaving the Dutch for a second. But during the Second World War, the Japanese occupation and decimation of a lot of the, the local population. And I'm like, why Japan? And then I realized how close it is to Japan in certain areas, you know, and, and strategically during the Second World War, it was, it was, uh, it was very, very important. This is sort of not quite yeah. but close to the area that our grandfather was, you know, active in. Um, yeah, it, it, the, absolutely. So the Southwest Islands and then places like uh, that were, as you say, strategically important um, were a hop, skip and jump away from Indonesian territorial uh, mm-hmm. islands. So we should jump into the food a little bit here, um, as that is technically what we are, a food podcast. My most recent reintroduction to Indonesian food was my first apartment in uh, in, in California in Berkeley was a duplex and we lived on the top floor and the landlords lived in front of us and uh, uh, Lee was Korean and she was this wonderful, uh, you know, grandmother style Korean woman who just loved to feed me kimchi and, um, you know, cook uh, and beef, uh, beef ribs and stuff like that. And her husband, Rudy, was Indonesian and he was, a they were wonderful, absolutely wonderful um, landlords. Like, you know, I'd help them with stuff that, you know, if they needed help with picking things up or moving things around and maybe once a quarter they'd be like, Hey, we're going to go do dinner. Or do you want to, you know, I've got some extra kimchi here. And then one time they were like, Hey, we're going to go get some Indonesian food up on university. Sadly, this place has gone out of business during COVID, but uh, Jaya Cotter's up in, up on university Avenue in, uh, in Berkeley. And Rudy just ordered everything for us. So it was like Nazi Goring and, you know, um, uh, Lamak and, and um, you know, Randang, all these wonderful things, which we'll talk about in more depth in a second. But it was such a great, like having somebody who knew what to order, just ordering for us. And it yeah. completely reignited my, my love of Indonesian food. That's, that's always such a revelatory experience when you go to a restaurant, either, you know, where, wherever you live or, or in situ, if you will, with somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, you know, they order you things you never would have considered before. So I'm very envious exactly. you had that opportunity. Yeah. So technically, Indonesia has got national dishes, but there's six. not one. There's six. And I don't know if we're going to talk about all of them. I'll try. Um, but there are multitude. And there's ones that are even famous that aren't national dishes. But I think before jumping into the national dishes themselves, we should sort of set the scene and talk about the fact that this is as we said, like the Dutch East Indies, the spice trade ran through here. Little leaf spices are unbelievably important to the cuisine. And and you made a point here that we, we need to start by talking about like probably the most recognizable condiment that you can find in any supermarket around the world, which is sambal, which is their hot chili condiment. Yes, it's a it's a wonderful thing. It is not it is an Indonesian Indonesian of origin but is endemic throughout the region so in malaysia sri lanka all the way for sri lanka brunei singapore and of course because of dutch colonialism you can find it in the netherlands and in suriname as well but it is mm-hmm. it, it, if you don't know what it is you will know the the taste and the flavor it's it's chili peppers with some kind of fish paste often shrimp paste don't let that put you off. Uh, mm-hmm. It's more for the umami, mm-hmm. garlic, ginger, shallots, or and or scallions, 
palm sugar and lime juice. And it is the base of so many beloved regional and, you know, I don't know, uh, just Southeast Asian in its broadest sense dishes. It's, I like to eat it from the jar. So, uh, yeah, no, me too. And every time I go to a Southeast Asian place, there's usually a little pot of it that you mm. dose out onto your, onto your things. Um, what you'll hear us talk about a lot is that shallots, shallots, um, ginger and, and palm sugar are just so, uh, tied to this region, like as far as mm. condiments are concerned. And I can't remember, I think cinnamon, uh, cinnamon, uh, originates from this place, and they used to tell stories about like stopping the, the colonial, well, justifying the the cost of it. That it was like, you know, part of this giant um bird's nest that they had to knock down while it was hiding, and then store it overnight in a cave that was then heated by a dragon, and like that's why you get your your cool. cinnamon. It only came from like two or three different islands in the Malacca Straits, which I know is technically more Malaysia, but anyway, it's all the same area. Um. This is why this area is so important, and and Sambal being sort of the best example of everything that they had. Uh, we've talked about in so many of our episodes about how you know Italian food wouldn't exist without the Colombian Exchange tomatoes, um, yeah. you know, you know, so many different food like Indian food, chilies, all this kind of stuff. While chilies did come from the New World, everything else that we're talking about is endemic to Southeast Asia. So you know, it's it's been going on for th- hundreds and hundreds of years. So yeah, let's let's jump into some of these. Um, yeah, there's some there's some wonderful dishes. Just reading this, the notes and everything, and thinking about this episode has made me want that type of food more than anything because it's all just so fresh. I did a lot of research for this for the attaché book, and just the mm-hmm. the descriptions and the flavors and the the the, the contrasting and complementary textures and um, just. I know, flavors does, doesn't do it justice, but just ideas. I I love Indonesian food, Malaysian food, Singaporean food. So, and that's the thing I was going to make the point of when you said Sing- Malaysian, Singaporean, Singaporean. So many of these things, people are like, well, we have that, and it's just, yes, you're friggin' island people, and you're passing ideas around for forever. Yeah, but of course, wanna... there was intra-island trade before the borders were were hard, yeah, drawn. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And so the first one, I think everybody in their mother has had at some point in their life, which is, I'm going to say it in an anglicized way, saute, which comes from, which is interesting that the original word um, is in, in in one of the main Indonesian languages, but the, um, the entomolo- entomologist, the <laughs> linguistic uh, um, etymologists that I was looking into were saying that that word probably came from Tamil. And that just shows how friggin' far that went, you know, and it comes from the word for flesh. And so those who don't know, saute is meat on a stick. And I mm-hmm. wrote in the notes, like there are like most food historians are saying categorically this came from Java, which is the main, uh, you know, um, administrative island. capital and yeah. uh, island of, of Indonesia, which like, again, like I said, where uh, Jakarta is. Um, but here's the thing: everyone in their every culture has got meat on a stick. What makes it uniquely theirs is the fact that it often has this yellow hue um, mm-hmm. uh, around it, and that's uh, turmeric is very, very you know um, found all over the, the these islands. And the way that they use uh, bamboo fronds, like uh, or or bamboo sticks, to to uh, use as the sort of 
kebab part of it um, makes it uniquely theirs as well. But I remember, you know, being six at in Hong Kong, just devouring chicken sauté. Yeah. Yeah, the turmeric really does give it that lovely hue and obviously the flavor as well. But you can't really go wrong with it either. And it comes with that divine peanut sauce, this, which I think has just been, you know, reverse named, retrospectively named saute sauce, mm-hmm. which is this peanut sambal See, that's the problem. I think, I think if you go to any sort of like middle of the road sort of TGI McFuds, whatever place that's like for some reason doing like Asian style saute. Like if you went to like um, TGI McSatés, yeah, what, what not Panner Express? What's the the chain Asian PF Changs? PF Changs. If you go there, went there, I can almost guarantee you the dipping sauce will not have. It will be more sweet peanut butter than uh, mm. with some lime juice in it than like what it should be, which is peanut as the like undertone, but like way more. Uh, tamarind tamarind is super important i feel is lost in a lot of american versions of this um soy palm sugar and sambal it's got to have some heat to it yeah yeah it, it has to have some heat to it and it's just it, it it's what makes it otherwise it's just sort of yellow grilled meat which is fine in and of itself <laughs> but then it's sort of it's yakitori but this is that that sauce absolutely makes it and it is something that indonesia or java even can claim as its own and be proud that it's it's become a you know globally ubiquitous food champion exactly so i wanted to open up with one that everybody probably knows or has has had um you know but not controversial because we know it's from it's theirs but knowing that like every other region in the area could quite easily try and claim it um so the rest of these are what I say are uniquely Indonesian with one that Malaysia might punch us in the back of the head for. Um, but the next one riding that turmeric uh, through line is Soto. And Soto is, is a, is a soup. It's a turmeric based coconut soup. And there are like 15 different varieties of this based on the kind of meat that you're using and the kind of um, application. Is this a breakfast style or is this a, a dinner style? And the one that I found, which was like, they, they said was they being, Indonesians is their national one of the national dish was uh, ayam, which is chicken, and it's their version of chicken noodle soup. So it is mm-hmm. a turmeric based coconut uh, milk based soup that has uh, vermicelli noodles in it, um, and is used in the same way as Jewish penicillin or you know what we use chicken noodle soup for in in the West, which is it makes you feel better when you're feeling crappy. Um, I've never had it, but reading the attaché book. You called out uh, the beef version of this, which is way more uh, well known in Jakarta. Which you know, I'll let you talk about it, but is a, is a far more broad interpretation of the original. Yeah, so um, it's Soto Batawi, which I, I guess Batawi were the native Jakartans that were there before it became a city, right? Um, and they it was named after them. So you get it all over all over Jakarta and sort of these roadside stalls. And it's, it's a coconut milk based broth, mm-hmm. which just sounds phenomenal. Anyway, beef and, and awful. And then you have it with rice, the akar pickle, and then the, and, and, and a sort of a splodge of sambal chili sauce. That is one of the six national 
dishes mm-hmm. because as you say, it's got this sort of ubiquity of, oh, you're, are you hungover? You need to have this. Got the flu? You need to have this. Been hit by a car? You need to have this. The, the one thing that like is in all of these and actually you find across a lot of Indonesian food is longton, which is uh, compressed uh, rice patties that you cut yeah. and almost they're their version of dumplings. And that is going to be seen in almost every single type of soto. Yeah, it's um, a little bit like, um, oh God, the Korean ver- the Korean rice cakes as well. Mm. Um, except oh. it's 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 a little bit more like um like a like a sushi rice kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, not the glutinous. I don't know capsule of rice that you get in Korea, which is just as good as well. But yeah, so, so slight slight tangent here. I sent this to Alex the other day, but oh, yeah. uh, if you don't follow them, um, they're they're spinoff channels called Jolly, but the main channel is called Korean Englishman. And it's an English guy who grew up in in, in Korea. Um, but now lives back in England and they went to the Fulham boys school, which is, uh, you know, a, a school in, in London, uh, and did street food, uh, Korean street food and Korean traditional dishes for, for the boys there during one lunch and sort of, uh, gauge their reaction. And they had the, the, the stew that's made with those gelatinous, Italian, um, rice cake things. And I always forget that they're called, um, and it's all going great. They love, you know, the fish cakes, they love the, um, yeah, fish cakes and broth. It's their version of like almost mm. like the this that we're talking about. And then they get to the Sunday, uh, and those who remember from the episode, uh, which I sat out uh, that Greg sat in for me, uh, Sunday is my kryptonite. Uh, I like black, black pudding, but something that tastes like a bloody mattress is 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 a struggle for me. And let's put it this way: I would say sixty percent of the kids who tried it are game for it, and there's a couple that are like this is like chewing on a bloody band-aid um so i love the fact that i'm not the only one that struggles with it it's but a texture watch thing it. it's a texture, it's a texture thing, thing. Sure. it's a texture thing and also it's what i was told like if you told me it was something else i might have had a problem no, less of a problem but go watch mm-hmm. it korean englishman it's on on youtube um but yeah the the the, the, the that was a complete tangent on the on the rice the rice cakes there but um but no you're right they are they are everywhere everywhere and they are you know, condiments good. are super big in Indonesia. Condiment, yeah, and it's it's throughout that sort of that longitudinal corridor. You know, Vietnam as well. When you're looking at making pho or anything like that, it's there are condiments that you can place in it to your specification. You know, however mm-hmm. you like it, and that's a big thing in Indonesian food as well, uh, and Malaysian to an extent. Uh, so. That's that's a big deal, and I think this next dish. So everybody's heard of this this next dish, which yes. you have in the notes here as being the most official of the official six national dishes of of Indonesia, and that's that's nasi goreng, which is just fried rice. And yes, when you when you read about nasi goreng, uh, or when you read about Indonesian food written by Indonesians as a guide to visitors. They're quite disparaging about nasi goreng as a as a backpackers food, and this is all backpackers eat. You want to know why this is what backpackers eat? Because it's fucking delicious <laughs> and it's cheap, and it's cheap and it's satisfying. I mean, it's, there's a reason that fried rice is is so common across all of Southeast Asia and up to to Japan. The point of of, of of nasi goreng is that it's meant to be used with left. It's a breakfast dish a lot of the times. It's meant to be used 
with leftover rice from the day before. And therefore mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's what my mother-in-law calls refrigerated Velcro. Like it's, you're, you're using what's in the <laughs> fridge. Like she always like jokes, like his, my mother-in-law loves when I'm, when I'm around cause I cook constantly. And she's like, I don't understand how you do it. You look in the fridge and you can find something you make refrigerated Velcro. I, that's a gift. <laughs> it's my one superpower. But yes, I, the nasi goreng thing is interesting. And so goreng means, I looked this up, goreng means fried because there is a version of this which was influenced by the Chinese called mi goreng, which is um, f- fried noodles, like um, like almost Singapore style noodles, just thicker noodles. Um, what does nasi mean? Because like there's nasi lemak in, in Singapore food. I, I don't quite know. I thought that uh, nasi is rice. Okay, so nasi lemak means rice something because like lemak yeah because not else. and then me going is me is the noodles going is frying, frying fried. i think yeah you know i'm 90 percent I'm sure that that's correct but with, with nazi nazi goreng that's what i get when i go to most indonesian places and, and again like we talked about like it, it it being fried rice and like the rules are pretty up in the air about like the vegetables you can use the meat you mm-hmm. can use obviously unless you're in bali it's 99.9 0.999% not going to be pork because of the Muslim um, influence in the rest of the rest of the country. So you're going to be looking at chicken, beef, um, uh, seafood, so on and so forth. But the condiments, again, the condiments are kind of what make it. We're looking at, you know, eggs. Eggs are such a huge part of Indonesian food, whether it's fried eggs, which you might get on a nasi goreng, uh, 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 boiled, hard-boiled eggs, or even like omelet style, but then, then the, you know, one of the things I, I, I saw is like whenever we're making fried fried rice, one of the things that a lot of TV shows do is like you made your rice and then you make a hole at the bottom of the wok and then crack your scrambled egg in there and let it, you know, cook a little bit. One of the things that I see that like a lot of fluffier um, fried rices do is they make a quick omelet off on, on another burner and then mm-hmm. use scissors to cut that up. So, and then parse that through so it's not like coating the rice that you just cooked in uncooked uh, egg whites you just have these fluffy pieces of of egg coated through so you'll find that like an omelet style cut through your nazi goreng uh fried shallots which is massive everywhere and then obviously sambal throughout the yeah so that's the interesting thing the sambal having the spice in the fried rice is something that doesn't usually happen until you've gotten as far south as Singapore, Indonesia, Singapore, and Malaysia, Malaysia, really, um, you don't get that. And then when, when, when you do hit that, uh, that latitude, you do get all these wonderful variations of, uh, you know, breakfast fried rice with the spice and all of that. So it's, this is something I hate about America. Like I don't want sweet food for breakfast. I would love somebody to give me a, Indonesian, you know, culture card saying, I'm, I want spicy food for breakfast. I really do. Like, I think it's such a great way to like get you, get you going. I don't drink coffee, so I'm rarely getting the caffeine hit. So give me yeah. some capsaicin in the morning so I can get yeah. my day going. I, you know, fried noodles, uh, or anything like that. When I'm in Asia, I go, I go full local on that stuff. I think it's just a great way, as you say, to, to start your day. And it's not something we, that we do, but yeah, if we do, it's like a it's an, like a Johnny McEgg McMuffin cake with some hot or, sauce or something Mexican. You exactly. Know. Well, huevos rancheros and stuff like that. Yeah, lots of great Mexican breakfast dishes. <laughs> Again, I'm on a massive um, 
tangent today, but I saw a video which was a uh, uh, two houses were having sort of holiday parties, like summer parties. On one side of the street, it was um, um, a Bengali family. On the other side of the street was a um, uh, a Mexican family, and they're having dance offs between Indian music and and uh, Mexican music, and they're all just like you know all these like. Um, you know, I don't know if this is a disparaging word, but the Cholo culture, because it was in LA, uh, like these guys with like, you know, looking very like aggressive, like doing the, the arm dances and all this kind of stuff. And top comment was like, dude, the food in the middle of that street is the best food in the world, hands yeah. down at any moment in time. And I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Talking about Mexican Amen. and Indian food. Um, but the, I'm not sure if you found this in your, in your research, but the, the Nazi goring and the, and the me goring, um, there is this sort of subtext that this might have been brought over by the Ming dynasty because right as sort of the wok made its way down to this area of the world and the sort of stir frying um, came about, you know, the rice, obviously we've talked about this in the past that rice is more of a Southern South Southeast Asian thing whilst noodles because wheat grows in, in colder climates is more of a uh, Northern thing. And that the Chinese immigrants who were coming into this world bought, brought the mee goreng with them because they saw the, the Nazi goreng style, but wanted the noodles. And that's why it sort of exploded into that part of Indonesia, like um, the technology and the, the ingredient. So you can see that this whole area has been inspired by China, by Malaysia, by everybody part of that area as well. Yeah. And the spice trade. And the spice trade, exactly. So things that came through, somebody was like, That's my I know good. that's <laughs> I know I know you're not stopping here, but I, give me some of that. And then it becomes a staple of the of, of the cuisine. And of course that's how, you know, food culture is born. Um yeah. for better or worse. So I think this next one was one of my favorite dishes growing up, but I had absolutely no idea where it came from. I thought it was Indian. I um, thought it was Indian too. Rendang or yeah, rendang, which is basically not quite a curry, not quite a stew, but is their version of slow cooked, long, you know, breaking down of connective tissues and all that fun stuff. Um, everything we talked about up to this point has been, light and coconutty and and you know uh rice and this is the first thing which is like stick to your ribs style um i don't know where i first had it but i was a child but i definitely never really put two and two together until sort of doing this research um and also something that i don't really find that often in the no world. it it is i think it's easy to understand why it feels Indian because it's it's from Western Sumatra and Sumatra is the westernmost major right. island. It's also um, the Malacca Strait runs like just slices between Sumatra and Malaysia and Singapore, mm -hmm. and of course Malaysia and Singapore and India have such strong links. It's and the the next landmass from Sumatra is Sri Lanka and India, so it's very easy to see the similarities in preparation and in flavors because of the uh, the maritime culture between you know around the Bay of Bengal. Absolutely, and so surrendering for those who are unaware is made by it's usually beef, um, but basically you're using coconut milk and spices and you're cooking 
that with the beef until it almost like it goes through different stages. I put in the notes, it's almost like a roux where you go from a white roux to a, a brick roux to a, to a red roux, which is like, as it sort of caramelizes and the water boils out, it goes through this caramelization uh, phase where it gets darker and darker and thicker and thicker and your flavors are more intensified. And then what happens is once all the liquid uh, evaporates is that the beef that's left that's been cooking for two, three hours starts to fry. So you're getting this slow cooked sort of short rib style you know, uh, stew, and then on like a quick burn right at the end, which is what you should be doing with a lot of your stews anyway. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people sear first, but you can do it in a couple different ways. And the dry rendang, which is a bit of a misnomer, is the most common. It's not dry. They've just taken this process to almost the extreme. So it's a bit more oily because the oil is now left. All that's left, there's no real equivalent of milk solids for coconut, the, the water content has dropped completely whilst wet rendang has not been taken as far and it's a bit more like a curry. But I freaking love it. The flavors are almost, I mean, yes, there there's cinnamon and there's, you know, turmeric and there's all these chilies, but it's almost got, um, it's almost like mole of Southeast Asia. I was going to say, it's, it, there's like a Texas chili. Exactly thing to it there's a slight smokiness it's just it's great yeah i think i think if you put the both in front of me like me goring i'm uh, sorry uh, nazi goring and, and rendang i think i could eat nazi goring every day for the rest of my life but <laughs> one day like like that the rendang is just far more i'm trying to think of a a, a good example like rendang is like the big family Christmas roast at the end of it, whilst mm-hmm. uh, whilst um, Nazi Goring is kind of like you know a chip butty. <laughs> I know that's really yeah, like yeah. oversimplifying it, but like it's no, just a like complex that. level of flavors. So in terms of this the the food, I think this last one, and there are obviously many more which we can't fit into this. I mean, that's the thing with the country, the fourth largest um, country in terms of population in the world. We're always going to miss something, but. When I was researching the attaché book, this is the one that came up top of the list on for for street food, which is gado gado, which means mix mix. It's a well, it's a salad essentially of 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 steamed and then cooled vegetables, the long tong rice cakes that we we talked about earlier, and hard boiled eggs, and then a, a bunch of other fresh and cooked vegetables. And the nice thing is, is you go from one stall to another to another, and the the concoction and combination is going to vary slightly and you go, I like this guy better than this guy. Uh, but then the whole thing is tossed in this peanut dressing. Obviously peanut is a huge component of Indonesian cooking, but it's this peanut dressing and it's crushed peanuts, sugar, chili, garlic, lime juice. I'm, you can very obviously see a trend here in the, in the composition of these <laughs> things, but, but, Consider that sambal is most often, you know, it, it's a it's a hot application. So it's uh, sometimes it's touched with some heat when you throw it into a wok at the end of an nasi going, or it's placed on top of something hot. This is to be eaten at room temperature or cold, but it does the same thing, and it's just it just tastes so fresh and. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've never had sort it. Of, you know, a little bit of an antithesis to the other things that we've that we've had, which which may sound sort of quite rich in a rendang or carb heavy in a nasi goreng or or 
you know, the, the, the noodles in the, in the Soto or anything like that. This is, is, is vegetable heavy, vegetable forward. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, if you think in your mouth, what citrusy, fresh crunch, you know, that, that's what this is like. Um, and it's one of my favorite street foods in the, in the entire world. I wonder if I can find that in the U S because I've definitely I don't never think had it. it would be that hard to make something that would be a Marks reasonable facsimile of mm. this. Yeah. Um, Interesting. but it's, yeah, it just shows, I mean, people are always wary of, of, you know, fresh fruit and veg and, and stalls. But I think, you know, as we've said so many times in any street food episode of, of this show or attache, if they're running things through the, the process quickly, there's a big line. You can't go wrong. It'll be fine. Yeah. Turnover um, is your quickest sign of, of success. Yeah, exactly. That uh, you, you, You're going to be all right. And a robust constitution. So <laughs> Exactly. Um, so we're going to have to jump around a little bit, but, you know, there are ones that we, you know, wonderful ones I'm sure you're going to tell us about that we missed, like uh, Ikan Bakor or uh, Berber Ayam, which is, you know, Indonesian chicken congee, which obviously shows the influence of the Chinese again. But, you know, obviously, as we talked about, there are so many that we need well, we could spend five episodes and not even scratch the surface, but we need to get to to our my favorite or what seems to be the audience's favorite section is telling us what we got wrong about the alcohol <laughs> or, yeah. or, or the drinking uh, in general. So the national drink, sorry, I think Kopi, as you mentioned in the last episode, so the mm-hmm. coffee influences, they have a myriad of different coffee uh, um, drinks that have been spiced with cinnamon or tamarind or whatever else it might be. So, you know, that whole like Sulawesi coffee we've talked about and this whole thing, coffee, you're going to find absolutely everywhere. Um, so we're going to put that to the side for now. And I want to talk well, about- Can we just more. quickly talk about, did you want to talk about Kopi Luwak? Did you read about Luwak? this? No. Kopi Luwak is coffee made from beans which have been eaten- Partially digested and pooped out by the palm civet. Wait, okay, so they said this is the one that um, it it was either it was some anniversary for Prince Charles about something. I can't remember it was his birthday or whatever. And Stephen Fry was like, "What is he not going to have? I don't want to give him another um, you know tin of biscuits that he's never going to open, kind of thing." So he got him civet shit coffee. Uh, yeah. and that was his, his, his 65th birthday or whatever it was. It's uh, the real deal. I had, I, I got given, um, it's a bit uh, of a gimmick, but oh well. Yeah, exactly. I've been given, um, paper made from elephant shit. So that's, that's oh yeah. Fun. Samesies. Yes. So no, I have not had it. And I bet you it's like a thousand dollars a pound and not worth it's it. It's not cheap. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Kopi is, is very important to them, but the one I want to talk about, or one of the ones I want to talk about was Batavia, Iraq. Um, Batavia is the old name for the Dutch colonies and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and Iraq is, uh, we talk that this word shows up in so many different varieties. Iraq just seems to be, it just seems to mean like fluid. <laughs> distilled alcohol in the loosest sense of the worm. So unlike word. the... Middle East version of this word, which is one R and one K. This is different. a yeah a r r a k, and and it has a different thing. So uh, the one we talked about in the Middle Eastern ones, that's the anise flavored mm-hmm. dis- the spirit. Arak that we're talking about here is different. 
This is Indonesian rum. This is yeah, uh, Batavia coconut flowers or sugarcane. Exactly, and the, the often this one is made from sugarcane and red rice to start the fermentation process. And the Dutch, the Dutch East India Company, were famous for their punches, and they would use this. Punches. Yeah, oh uh, well, that's a double on top. I mean, yeah, they were dicks, and they made uh, good cocktails. Um, and this was one of the major uh, uh, ingredients of that, and the, and. The Indonesians have taken this on themselves post-colonialism and made a made you know an industry out of it. Um, the reason I bring it up as being used in punches is because it's seventy percent ABV, and oh. tourists die from this every year from methanol poisoning because they think it's like freaking Havana Club or whatever other rum that you get you know in in the Caribbean, uh, which is you know 30, 40, 50 percent on a bad day. Um, this thing is straight up lighter fluid. Um, it's got very complex flavors if you can see through the burning pain. So yes, you want to cut this with some stuff. You want to put this into a cocktail. You want to put this into a punch. So if you see Batavia Rock on your travels, don't take it like a shot or you will not have a good time. <laughs> so there's two other ones, one alcoholic and one non-alcoholic. I'm going to touch upon real quickly, again, showing the influence of the Dutch. Um, you must have had Bintang. It's the most famous yeah. beer of Southeast Asia, I want to say. Um, yeah. I think it's even more famous than Singh at this point. It's a Pilsner. It's actually owned by Heineken, which I had to find out in the, in the research. The bottle design is identical. It's got the red star on the bottle, very similar to Heineken. It is their version. And so basically the Heineken company or the Dutch who went on to find uh, found the Heineken company um, started it. And then sort of left them alone for like 30 years. And they made it slightly different. It's a little more crisp, a little bit more, you know, refined for the environment compared to Amsterdam. They're not very similar in the kind of beer you're looking for. But it is like everybody says if you were to give you an Indonesian a Heineken and a Bintang, they would always take the Bintang. Um, and I like it. You find it everywhere across Southeast Asia. It's really, yeah, really enjoyable. No, it's, it's, it's a good beer. It's one of those things that has escaped the gravitational pull of its homeland which is qu quite rare uh, um, when you think about it yeah absolutely and look there's there's hundreds of different drinks there's a lot they do a lot of the sort of jellied ice drinks like you do across mm. a lot of southeast asian but the last one i wanted to mention was Weedang jerk a uh, derek madu which is well, hot I've never heard of this hot orange juice hot hot honey orange juice and the reason That's i bring gross. this up is because Alex O'Striker, happy birthday, dude. You had, it was your birthday yesterday. And um, everyone hung out in California and I didn't get to go. Sad. Anyway, <laughs> um, he, back in the day on one of these, you know, mispriced fares situation, uh, he was able to get a business class trip from the oh, West Coast via this. Hong Kong to Bali, right? And wonderful experience uh, for like 600 bucks or something ridiculous like that. Anyway, they had a wonderful experience. His, his, his fiance Tessa is, is predominantly vegetarian and Indonesia is good for that. Indonesia is great for the fruit and the vegetarian options, especially in, in Bali because of the, the Buddhism. Um, and, you know, he was saying that, you know, the fruit, the rambutans, all that is incredible, but he got kidney stones in Bali. Oof. And the only thing that made him feel better was his hot, spiced orange juice and it was like kept kept him hydrated kept him full of vitamins while he passed 
the male equivalent of a child. You know? So you I bet know. he's super excited for us to be talking about his. Yeah, I, what's hilarious stands. is that I texted him the other day and I was like, "Hey, we're doing Indonesia. Uh, anything you want me to mention?" He gave me a list of things that we're not going to obviously be able to talk about because they were like, you know, the, this we don't have enough hours illegal. today. Borderline illegal, yes. Massive <laughs> amounts of black tar heroin. Anyway, uh, no. Um, and the thing, that, one of the things he called out was this orange juice that like sort of kept him, uh, kept him Alive, vertical, vertical like. during his his kidney stone. So uh, if anybody's been through that, you know the pain. Um, and I thought that was one to call out. I've never seen it anywhere else, so I thought I would uh, throw it in there. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, what a great way to end uh this very, very diverse episode. I wish we exactly. had more time to, to but if you ever, which, if you, oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, okay, no, no, I was I gonna say, speaking this. of diverse episodes, Jay next, like what the, Japan. yeah, exactly. And that's going to take 17 episodes. Yeah. We may, we may, we may, may, we may not do Japan. We may need to, to pick a, a, a one Island. Uh, yeah. There's Oof. Jamaica. There's, uh, Right. We're, we're hitting a stretch where there aren't that many per letter. Jordan. Mm. Jordan would be good. But here's the thing. like I, I know these countries are all very different, but when we get to Q, there's only one country. And mm. like, you know, so you've got to like, there's a lot of Middle Easterns, like we've got to, uh, you know, elbow around to be able to make sure we, we break it up and it's not just the Middle, middle East hour. Um, but yeah, if you've ever been to Indonesia or have an Indonesian restaurant near us or no, like you know, no offense to all Australia friends, but you do go to Bali a lot. If there's any favorite Bali dishes that we uh, we forgot to mention, please let us know. If you're currently sitting drinking some Iraq, please take it slow. Um, yeah. <laughs> God help anything you. else you wanted to mention? No, no, I, I I just want some Indonesian food now. Me too. I know. Well, we this is the my favorite part of the whole episode. This is, is- this is an easy one. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say that, like, I looked this up and in, in the Indonesian for cheers. Most people say the one I'm going to mention at the end of here is quite formal. Uh, and mo- yeah. and they've actually, um, English is the third official language. Um, and so they use cheers a lot. But, you know, I'll, I'll bust this one out for the, for the lulls. Uh, well, until next time. Bustling. Bustling. Yeah. I like it. It's quite easy. I'll allow it. It's good. <laughs> 